Kia ora, I'm Sarah Robson and today on The Detail, it's election year. Decision 23 is going to be dynamite. It's already got off to a roaring start. Labour and National are now neck and neck again. We've heard plenty about the matchup between the two Chrises, but what about the minor parties? who could actually be crucial in deciding who leads the next government. Assuming the Māori Party wins an electorate seat again, their result gets them two. They're more likely to go left. Bang. That is 60 each way. A draw, a dead heat, a hung parliament. I've got Newsroom's political editor, Joe Moyer, and RNZ's deputy political editor, Craig McCulloch, together in a studio to talk about how things are shaping up for the minor parties as we head towards polling day on October 14th. Kia ora, Craig and Joe. Kia ora. Kia ora. One of the things my sound engineer and I were chatting about before we came on air was that it seems a bit dismissive to call the minor parties minor parties given how much influence they could actually wield heading into this year's election. I didn't want to start with a quibble, but I do wonder whether or not it's uh, it's even accurate nowadays to describe some of these parties as minor. When you're getting one in ten votes, uh, one in ten of every votes, are you a minor party? Um, I mean, the ACT Party at some point last year was registering around 16, 17% 18. in the polls. 18.5. Yeah, 18.5. I, I mean, that's not a minor party anymore. And, and when you consider, you know, looking back in history, where as the lowest that Labour and National have got to uh, in the high 20s um, or mid-20s, you know, like it, it starts to get into this sort of weird grey area as to what's a minor party and what's a major party. Perhaps we need to be talking about them as potential coalition partners rather than Well, that's quite a big mouthful, Craig. Uh, we could spend this entire episode um, whiteboarding what we think they should be called. The minor-ish parties, perhaps? Mid-sized. We were just talking about ACT before. Maybe we should start with them because, you know, the 2020 election was huge for ACT. They went from a one-man band with David Seymour as the sole MP to a caucus of 10, and they're still polling around, what is it, 10% in the latest opinion polls? Mm, yeah, I mean, actually, if you go back beyond this election cycle, ACT had a, a woeful run for, for quite a while, right from about 2011 through to 2020. They had just one, one MP in Parliament by virtue of that Epsom electorate. Mm. And in 2017, David Seymour led ACT to its worst result ever with, what was it, 0.5%. So to go from its worst ever result to its best ever um, was a dramatic turnaround, probably to say the least. I want to thank the people of New Zealand, around 200,000 New Zealanders who have put their trust in ACT and would like this genuinely independent team of fabulous ACT MPs to work for you. It's not all that surprising then that back in 2020, commentators, observers were predicting that Act would have a um, potentially rocky road with these nine fresh MPs coming in, not necessarily knowing what what they're doing. I, mean, I remember in the lead up to that election, Act insiders were fairly open about their concerns. They weren't expecting to bring in quite so many people. One of the Act Party insiders told me that they they were concerned they had potential liabilities coming mm. into Parliament. So, given all that, I don't think many would have predicted that actually coming out the other end of this term, 
it would be the ACT Party that's emerging pretty much unscathed. And yeah, and you and you talk about the the MPs. I mean, to be honest, like Labour was kind of in the same boat. They had so many come in in twenty twenty mm. that nobody expected would actually be MPs, and certainly Labour Party insiders were like, "Oh my goodness, these people could be a problem for us." Well, and, uh, exhibit A: Goat of Sharma. Godof Schirmer has been booted out of Labour's caucus after a fortnight of accusations against his colleagues. <laughs> well, yes. Um, but so, ACT hasn't had a Godof Sharma. ACT hasn't had a Godof Sharma. Why? But, well, as, as part of that, though, because although it's a bigger caucus um, than normal for ACT, it's still a relatively manageable number compared to the Labour Party. And I feel like I have to apologise because I sort of um, said at length that they were going to be a disaster because of some of these MPs and, and they haven't been a disaster at all. And, um, yeah, I was completely off the money on that one. So um, apologies, David Seymour and the Act Well, I, I think most of the credit probably does go to David Seymour. He is fairly experienced now. He's been around for quite some time in Parliament. He's a canny strategist. He knows how to deliver a soundbite. Mm. He knows how to navigate the news cycle. Um, he, he knows how to capitalise on Nationals' woes just as much as Labour's and set himself up basically as the surrogate opposition well, leader. And like to David Seymour's credit too, he's been really good at giving questions um, in the House during question time to other MPs as well. I mean, you regularly see the likes of Nicole McKee, Mark Cameron. Oh, question number 10, Nicole McKee. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Minister of Police and reads, is he confident that all information stolen during the firearms licensing data breach at the former Auckland Central Police Station on Vincent Street has since been recovered? There's a bunch of them that are regularly asking questions in their portfolio areas, and he's kind of giving them the confidence and the platform to actually be able to to prove, you know, that they know what they're doing and, and that they're doing the work. And, I mean, I, th- I think that's a, a really good thing as well, whereas take it back to the Labour example, massive caucus, mm. MPs all over the place in various parts of the building, and occasionally get get to ask a patsy question. Yeah, perhaps perhaps the inexperience too speaks to why they're such a tight-knit bunch. You know, they've kind of bonded together they're with this experience. They're all freshers together. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be the egos there apparent as there might be in other parties. They're a little bit nervous. You can see that they're a little bit quiet, perhaps in select committees. They don't really seem to like the media attention all that much. But you know, maybe they're not making great headlines, but they're not making bad headlines they're either. They're not making and bad headlines. That's a lot more than the other parties can say. We haven't seen Act support fall away with Chris Luxon becoming the leader of the National Party. What does that tell us about the landscape on the right of politics? Well, I mean, Craig and I have sort of talked about this. We, I think with this election in particular, rather than that sort of battleground in the centre, which you're still going to see because National and Labour still sort of sit there centre-left and centre-right, I think the sort of other end of the spectrums are playing quite a big role at the moment. So you've got the Greens that are holding up and then you've got ACT who's really holding up, which basically means that if the polls you know, continue in this way, you're going to end up with an election result that is either much more left or much more mm. right mm. as a result. You know, the votes are kind of spilling around a little bit more. You know, you're not seeing those big sort of, you're not seeing National Hit 40, for example, and that's why ACT is holding up because there is a whole bunch of sort of centre-right voters out there who are looking at David Seymour and looking at ACT and going, actually, that's for us, not the National Party. And that, that, that will shape the election campaign, I think. I expect that will get a lot of attention, both with Labour and National, respectively, trying to play up fears about what the other side is going to be forced to do by their mm. so-called minor partner. I, I mean, I think 
there will be a lot of attacks along the lines of Judith Collins in 2020 around the Greens wealth tax, this idea that voters need to consider what the minor parties' promises are just as much as the major ones because they could end up being needed to form a government. They will end up being needed. And so what does that mean for what that government looks like and how it operates? I think both Chris Hipkins and Christopher Luxon could find themselves forced into that rule-in rule out game much more than they would like to. Any talk of coalitions and possible coalition arrangements uh, is all very, very premature and very, very hypothetical. And so from my perspective, uh, I get what you're trying to do, but the bottom line is... Uh, well, exactly. And I think, you know, the capital gains tax is a, is a particularly interesting one as well, because that conversation pretty much, you know, came to an end because of that very definitive statement from Jacinda Ardern that, you know, under her leadership, there would not be a capital Mm. gains tax. But, you know, Chris Hipkins is now going to be in a situation where he's actually going to have to respond more, I guess, to some of those Green Party policies. So you're ruling out revisiting a CGT policy or um, an increasing the age of super policy for the rest of the term? Well, I mean, all of those things would have very long lead times if there was to be any change in those. We've set out a policy for this term of Parliament. That doesn't change because there's been a change in Prime Minister. And we'll be very clear with New Zealand is what our policy is as we head into the next election for the next term of Parliament. And I genuinely think that a wealth tax, a capital gains tax, is going to be a really meaty talking point on the left um, in this election. And, you know, that gives uh, fuel for, for National Enact as well. And, you know, and the same goes on the right. Act is going to have a bunch of stuff that National would normally find fairly easy to say, you know, that's not for us, um, in the rule, rule in, rule out game. And I don't think they're going to have the luxury. Christopher Luxon's not going to have the luxury of being so definitive about it this time around. Let's turn to the Greens now. They've now had two terms working as part of a Labour government. Is that going to help or hinder them going into this election? <sighs> James Shaw often cites the fact that the Greens are the only minor party which has gone into government and then has come out of it stronger. So they went in, let me just look at my notes, from 6.3% they got in 2017 and then they got 7.9% in 2020. That is an impressive feat given that trend for minor parties Mm. to be effectively swallowed by their larger partner in government. This term they have stayed fairly steady. The recent polls, most recent polls, have them basically in the same place that they were on election night. Now that's nothing to be sniffed at, But you you might have thought that the Greens would have benefited some from Labour's gradual slump over this term. You know, when you consider that Labour has dropped about 12 points in the polls, um, those voters haven't gone to the Greens. They have gone back to National, which suggests, I think, to me that the Greens have a consolidate. They've consolidated that really strong support base, but that they're not necessarily reaching further afield than that at the moment. I do think that the switch from Jacinda Ardern to Chris Hipkins does open up a bit of space, a bit of room for the Green Party, because Jacinda Ardern, as that young progressive female leader, she really did capture a certain demographic of voters, um, which otherwise might have voted for the Green Party. I think the Greens can be relatively confident they're going to stick above that 5% threshold based on their polling. And interestingly, seeing that that has... They've they've sort of pivoted a little bit recently, looking more at at the electorate seats after Chloe Swarbrick's win Mm. in Auckland Central. They think they have a a pretty good shot at the Wellington Central seat with... Um, local councillor Tamatha Paul. I think, going back to your other point too, though, Craig, I think it's interesting. Like the Greens have got this um, ability too to really kind of like t- tap back into sort of the 
they're core things too. So, like, you take climate change. You know, Jacinda Ardern kind of, although some would argue that it wasn't kind of delivered on, would... You know, she she occupied that space as much as the green. She had that the nuclear, sort of free nuclear free moment. I will never stop talking about it because climate change is the challenge that defines my generation. And, you know, people will argue that you're probably possibly not going to see so much of that under Chris Hipkins. That's like a, 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 a very easy area for the Greens to kind of completely claim back without having sort of Jacinda Ardern also in that space. What's interesting there is that it wasn't a viable strategy in 2020, right? Going after the Labour Party, attacking the Labour Party. New Zealand first tried that and it flamed out terribly. This time round, I do think that the Greens can afford to show a little bit more steel Given that we've just had these colossal floods uh, in Auckland and Northland, the idea that we would now subsidise or continue to subsidise the root cause of those flooding events is kind of bonkers to me. They can kind of argue that they are necessary to to get those left-wing wins, particularly given Chris Hipkins' policy purge, his tilting back to the centre. That also opens up a bit of a space yeah. for Yeah, I mean, you definitely saw that at the end of last year mm. once that sort of um, popularity, uh, stardust-type stuff, you know, Jacinda Ardern started to uh, really start to drop in the polls. You saw the Green Party very quickly respond to that in terms of their messaging, press releases, the way that Marama Davidson in particular was speaking in Parliament, you know, on Bridge Run and stuff. The cost of living payment, uh, your thoughts? Oh, we're really clear it's got to go, surely, to the people on the lowest, lowest income. So the targeted approach should actually have included um, people receiving income support, people on the lowest incomes. Much more aggressive towards the Labour Party, sort of not doing enough, feeling like they once again had the ability and space to do that because, um, you know, it wasn't sort of Jacinda Ardern didn't have that same popularity behind her. So it'd be interesting to see how they use that in this upcoming election, I think you will see lots on the campaign trail of kind of, you know, pushing pushing against Labour and, um, yeah, kind of making those points. And, and, you know, particularly on the climate change one, I genuinely think that you've got people now who perhaps it didn't feature so much in their thinking based on what has happened in Auckland, for example, um, Coromandel, Northland. I think for the most part people were probably a little bit more aware of climate change as an issue and are experiencing it, you know, on their doorstep. Really tangible. And, yeah, and I think that's like a an debate area for um, the Green Party that is very alive and well at the moment. Mm. And I guess Labour needs the Greens this time around. The Greens therefore wield a lot more influence in any potential coalition negotiations and actually policy action in those sorts of areas becomes far more realistic for the Greens? Yes and no. The Greens don't have anywhere else to go. It's always been the problem for the Green Party. They're not prepared to work with the other side of the aisle for a variety of reasons, and that leaves them with some more limited options. Of course, the higher the vote that the Green Party get, the more sway they get in any negotiating situation and the more um, ministerial positions they could push for, for example, the more policy wins they could get. They will also have learnt from their 2017 experience, which they have been fairly open about that the negotiating, they probably didn't maximise that as well as they could have. They will take that experience too into any negotiating room this time around. Te Party Māori back in Parliament this term after an absence. Um, how have they gone? The thing that's jumped out for me, actually, about them is 
they're not really in the thick of sort of the big national issues so much. They are in the sense that, like, you know, obviously, particularly during the COVID years, um, you know, you literally saw Debbie Nari Wapaka out there vaccinating yeah. people and um, very much in that space. But at the same time, she wasn't standing in Parliament talking about it. She was actually out on the ground, like, doing the thing. They've taken a very values-focused approach. Well, yeah, exactly. I feel as if they're picking issues that, you know, might be seen as a little bit niche, but they are progressive for Māori in terms of just changing the way that, um, I guess, things have been for so long. You know, you look, if you go way back to when they first came in, I say way back, wasn't that long ago, but, (laughs) you know, every month is three years. Um, (laughs) They, you know, they had that real, real huge energy around what you could wear on the floor of the House and Parliament. Mr Speaker, no, I've indicated to the member that I will not call him when he is not properly dressed. The member will resume his seat. A point of order. Your memo made reference to those that have cultural attire. You have allowed other cultures to wear what's right for them. Why are you denying Māori culture their attire and his heitiki? And it was kind of like, you know, is this a big deal? Why are they wasting so much time and energy on it? It is a big deal. It's a big deal about what they consider to be part of their culture and, you know, what they feel um, is acceptable. And, you know, it was a, a, a debate, really, about sort of oppression and colonisation. And, and they claimed a victory, which, you know, parties that are in opposition don't get victories very often. And so that alone is a fairly you know, symbolic gain for them. I'm really interested to see what happens with the Māori seats. Mm. Um, I think, you know, Rawiri Waititi, he might have only beaten um, Tamati Kofi and Wairiki by a thousand votes, I think it was. But that, bear in mind... About that, 800, yeah. Yeah, that was like a massive, massive landslide um, yeah. victory for Labour. So you would expect Rawiri to win that seat and buy more. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got Te Tai Hauru, which uh, Adrian Rudafe, who's now the Speaker, is, is not mm. standing in That's that seat. Right. So yeah. Labour's going to be putting someone new in. And Debbie is a a huge personality and a hard worker in that seat, on the ground, helping people um, and just being a real presence. I think she's got a really good shot there. It could come down to who Labour puts up in Adrian Rudafe's place. If Debbie and, and Rawiri can both secure those seats and get a bit of their vote up as well, they will be an absolute force and you know you've already seen the polls at the end of last year and the start of this year pointing to uh, Te Pāti Māori as a potential kingmaker so but yeah. do they want maker. to be in yeah <laughs> potential chris maker but do they actually want to be in government oh i i know that the co-leaders have played themselves up in this sort of role as as potentially sitting on the the cross benches or something like that i mean for, for a start it is very difficult to imagine a scenario where Te Pāti Māori goes with national act bordering on impossible um, I mean, one only, an interesting to, parliament. one only needs to watch a recent interview um, on the AM show between Rawiri Waititi and David Seymour where they clashed. Uh, and so uh, the Acton National Party have both uh, been pushing a fear-mongering campaign uh, against co-governance, which actually puts a lot more pressure on. Um, so know, take um, all of their Rawiri, yeah. why don't yeah, you tell us one, one moment, uh, David, David, Excuse me, excuse me. Well, it was quite explosive. So um, it's hard to see them working together in a cabinet room. Now, 
based on their comments, they seem somewhat reluctant to go with Labour and the Greens too. I suspect that that is to to a degree posturing and positioning to put mm. themselves in a position to to leverage gains during negotiations. I agree with you. If they have the um, ability to, you know, make real change from a position of government, I think it would be very hard for them to not to do that. Mm. Let's do a quick whip around some of the parties on the periphery. It kind of feels like there's only one, really, and that's New Zealand Zealand first. first. (laughs) Here we are again. (laughs) I I do think that of those parties outside Parliament, New Zealand first is probably the only one that warrants much discussion Mm. right now, and that is mainly just because of Winston Peters and his profile and his track record. How likely is it, though, this time? Oh, I, I don't. I think you'd be a brave person to to bet either way. I think yeah. the, set, the settings are right for an outsider party, for a protest vote party. That said, you know the, they haven't managed to cross that five percent threshold in the polls yet. I like that um, Craig's refusing to put a bet one way or the other just because <laughs> he's slightly terrified that Winston Peters might be listening to this. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a good summary, Craig. And I mean, all I would say is that. Having both of us actually having seen Winston Peters in the last week, poor mm. he's, he's looking energised, isn't he? He's um he's looking young, he's looking mm. fit, and he's ready to go. It's amazing how sort of a year or two out of um, Parliament, suddenly everyone looks a little bit younger again. Everyone's <laughs> rejuvenated. Yeah. So no, I, yeah, I mean I'm the same. I, I wouldn't sort of put a bet either way um, on it. But certainly from what I can gather, you know, New Zealand First is very much out there. Winston Peters and Shane Jones are regularly uh, meeting with influential people, business leaders. They are, you know, filling up the New Zealand First coffers with some donations to, um, you know, have the money to, to put in a pretty decent campaign. And that definitely one to watch. I know the other party that people talk about is the Opportunities Party or TOP. Um, and, and it did start turning up in the polls more regularly towards the end of last year, but still, again, nowhere near that 5% threshold. Without an electorate, um, at this stage, I would say they are a, a basically a non-entity. All right, some crystal ball gazing. Oh, dear. <sighs> Um, I mean, it's just really what I was saying earlier. I think, you know, that this is going to be an election that's going to be the two major parties duking it out in the centre and accusing each other of being at the whims of their, their, their smaller partners. To some degree, I think neither Chris will be all that worried about maybe losing some votes to their respective partners mm. because, you know, they can still work together in government and that's that's the beauty of MMP. Um, the fact that this election does look like a tight one does give these other parties a whole lot more sway, a whole lot more influence. I think that's going to shape the campaign and it could decide the election. Joe, Yeah, I mean, strangely, I actually agree with what Craig said. <laughs> This um, is strange. <laughs> just watch the space in Auckland. I really do think that Auckland is going to be a real battleground. And I know every election people sort of say, you know, elections are, are won and lost in Auckland um, purely because of the number of people voting mm. there. But I just think that that could not be any truer than this year. I think that is going to be an incredibly tough area for both of them. And I think you are going to see a heck of a lot of Christopher Luxon and Chris Hipkins in the 09. Mm-hmm. That's it for today. I'm Sarah Robson. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Flo Wilson and it was produced by Bonnie Harrison and Alexia Russell. And thanks to Newsroom's Joe Moyer. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. And thanks to RNZ's Craig McCulloch. No, thank you, Sarah. Thanks, guys. <laughs> we'll have to get you back in the studio together sometime soon. Can't wait. Matewa. Matewa.